Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm so thankful for uh, just an opportunity uh, that the church gave me this past month. So if you've been visiting, this church does have a pastor. Uh, I feel like I need to reintroduce myself in, in many ways. So my name is Adam Mask, and I have the, the honor and the privilege of serving here at Community as the lead pastor. Uh, me and my wife, Grace, have been here uh, eight and a half years, and the church, this church, if you haven't found, uh, if you're visiting, uh, I'm sure you will find, if you haven't found already, how welcoming, how loving, and how inviting this church is. And so Grace and I uh, have been serving here uh, for eight and a half years, and so the church graciously uh, gave us a, a month sabbatical just to get along with the Lord, uh, to be refreshed, and to seek after uh, what it is that God would have us uh, in these coming years, these next eight and a half years to be focused in on. And so tonight at 530, I want to invite you all back. We'll have our State of the Church address uh, where we look at what the Lord has done over the past three years and, and what he has done this year and then what uh, he is calling us to in the future. So we'd love for you to be back this evening to hear about what God has done, what God is doing, and what we are prayerfully asking God to do uh, in the coming weeks, the coming months, and the coming year. So grateful for the individuals that were here over the past four weeks to equip us apologetically of how we can defend our faith. And I pray above anything that you saw that God's word does give us answers to the questions that the world is asking, that our faith isn't a blind faith. It is a settled faith. It is a faith that we can build our lives upon. It is a foundation that is strong and that it is true. And so this morning, I want to jump back into our series that we have been in for, for many months, and that is looking at the, the ministry, the life and the earthly ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the study of the four Gospels. And the best that we can ascertain, uh, we try to put them in chronological order so that we can kind of get a feel of the ministry, how it unfolded in real time, because we have a God who stepped out of eternity and into the real world here as our Savior. And so this morning, we are going to pick back up uh, in our study of the Gospels in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, in a message entitled, An Extraordinary Call to Twelve Ordinary Men. Now, just in and of that self is a blessing. Just in and of that, I pray that you will see in the text today that there is an extraordinary call given by the one who has all authority in heaven on earth, and his desire is to use ordinary individuals. Listen, I, I, I am grateful for that fact that God doesn't look upon the sea of humanity and choose us based upon as if he were building a kickball team, based upon how fast we can run, uh, based upon our, our strengths, based upon uh, how tall we are, based upon any abilities in and of ourselves, but he quite literally uses the ordinary. That's what Paul will write in 1 Corinthians, is it not? That he chooses the food. He says, think about your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. Amen, he's talking to me. Not many of you are of noble birth. Not many of you carry with you this great status or stature in this world. But yet God has chosen us to confound the wise of this world with the foolishness of God as they perceive it to be. And isn't it good that in our passage we're going to see that a lot of these individuals, the words that they spoke in the three years that they were with Jesus is not one recorded. After the, the, the death, the burial, and the ascension of Jesus, uh, we only have church tradition to tell us exactly what it is that transpired. We don't even have many of their words recorded. And oftentimes, we allow the enemy to deceive us and to beat us down because we feel like we're not making this, this great impact for, for God Almighty that we just are living these ordinary lives. Listen, there's nothing ordinary about living for Jesus. The historical records may not have... Uh, any account of us when we take our last breath. But if we're living for Jesus, God's word says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we don't labor in vain. That everything is worth it. And this morning as we look, we see that, that Jesus, out of a multitude of disciples, he calls a specific 12 to him. And we'll see that these are ordinary individuals. And we'll see that in a passage of scripture that oftentimes is just read over very quickly and, and glanced over or not 
really looked at in depth at all really has deep, profound implications for each and every one of us as we follow after our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so if you have your Bibles open, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, we're about a year and a half into Jesus' earthly ministry at this point. He's been healing individuals. He's been, he's been teaching. He's been proclaiming the, uh, the, the message of repent and believe. He's been driving out demons. And we see that in this time, he's got a large following. And out of this large following, he's about to call 12 individuals to fulfill an office uh, that is called apostle. And we see that it says in verse 12, in these days, in these days, isn't it good that, that the God of all of eternity steps into our time and into our life in these days. These are real times. These are real people. These are real lives. Listen, these aren't Bible stories. Listen, my mama watches stories. Victor Newman is a part of stories. Jack Abbott is a part of stories. Why I know those names, I'm not going to go into that. The Bible's not stories. These are real events that happen in a real time with real people. Because we have a real God who extends real grace to individuals who have real hurts and real pains and real suffering. We have real answers to real questions. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew. That's a great name. There's not enough Bartholomews in the world. Anybody pregnant with, with a boy? There you go. And Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, before we unpack, there's four things that I really want to show you. But before we do that, let's do just a little bit of doctrinal work. There was an article in the Atlantic that came out just yesterday that talked about the, 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 the fastest growing and rising sect, if you will, of evangelical Christianity. That's how they view it. I don't necessarily know that I would view it. Is the New Apostolic Reformation. Anybody familiar with NAR churches? New Apostolic Reformation. And there's this terminology that is used that there are, the office of apostle is still in uh, uh, work within the church today. Now, what is interesting about this is that oftentimes when you really start to dive into that, these individuals that will take for themselves the terminology of apostle, they believe that they are getting new, fresh revelation from God Almighty that is outside of the canonized scripture. And because they have a direct line that God speaks directly to them, people really need them in their lives because they are, they are the intercessor. They're the go-between God, not Jesus. They, they are because they have a direct line that Jesus talks directly to them, to them, and you can't question their authority. Now, listen, Paul, who we know is an apostle, says you better question the authority of the individuals that are preaching to you. You need to be good Bereans. He commended the individuals that went back and looked at Scripture and made sure what was being taught them lined up with Scripture. If you ever find yourself in a church where the leaders of the church are saying you can't question their authority, get out of that church. That is not a God-honoring, biblically uh, literate uh, church. Uh, you better question, you better take everything I say and line it up with God's word and make sure it matches. You need to make sure that you do the due diligence. So when we talk about an apostle, uh, let me just unpack some scripture to you. because That was an office that was given to the, the, the first century church. And it was given for a specific reason. They were given specific powers and, and miracle abilities so that they could confirm. Listen, we, we have God's word. It is confirmed. It is canonized. We have all of the scripture that we don't need. We don't need more scripture. We have everything that we need that God decided. We may not have every answer to every question that we have, but we have what it is that God has revealed to us for us to know. Now, when you look at this idea of apostleship, we see that it is an office. When Judas uh, killed himself and they were in the upper room, they said, hey, we got to find somebody to fulfill 
uh, his office. There is a position. It is an office uh, that was given. We got to find somebody to fill this position. And in Acts 1, 21 through 22, we read what the qualifications are for somebody to fulfill the role and the office of apostle. God's word says this, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So they had to be alive when Jesus was alive. They had to be a part and see and hear the teachings of Jesus for themselves with their own eyes and their own ears. Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Somebody that has seen the resurrected Savior, the office of apostle, only the qualification is for somebody that has seen the resurrected Savior. Notice in 1 Corinthians 9, first half of verse 1, Paul talking about himself being an apostle. Notice that he equates being an apostle with having seen Jesus. Am I not free? Am I not apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? You read on in 1 Corinthians 15, 4 through 8, and we see again this idea of Jesus' resurrection and being seen by individuals is equivalent with uh, the role and the office of apostle. Not everybody that saw Jesus uh, uh, was an apostle, but it was one of the qualifications for you to be an apostle. 1 Corinthians 15, 4 through 8 says that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So if you haven't seen the resurrected Savior with your own two eyes, and you weren't there during his earthly ministry, God's own word says that the qualifications are that for you to carry the role and the office of apostle. Now, the big danger of this, again, it's not that somebody wants to call themselves an apostle. You want to call yourself an apostle? Okay, I, 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 think, I don't think that's a legitimate office in the church today, but you want to take the, the, the moniker apostle, that's okay. The problem is what is happening in a lot of these churches is they are saying that they have this new revelation from God Almighty and that you have to listen to them. Just put this aside and listen to me as if they are scripture. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever bought an older house that maybe the foundation or you have a house where the foundation was unsettled and sank or you started to get cracks in your walls and they would come in and some of you may have had to come in and peer the foundation. Are you aware of this process of coming and, and basically jacking up the elevation of a church so that the ground is level? That's the idea of this new apostolic reformation is that this isn't sufficient, that there are cracks in the foundation of God's word. And so therefore, we need this fresh revelation to come in underneath the foundation of God's New Testament and his Old Testament that we have been given and prop it back up to its proper stand. Listen, there's no crack in this foundation. This is sufficient. This is everything that we need right here to apply and to live our lives out for the glory of God Almighty. We don't need to peer the scriptures. We don't need to fix the foundation of the scriptures. And that comes to great detriment to many individuals that are being led astray by a lot of these individuals. Many of them claim that they have the gift of prophecy, but yet a lot of their prophetic uh, proclamations, they don't come true. And in the Old Testament, listen, you might get in the Hall of Fame in baseball batting 300, but in the Old Testament, it says in God's word, it says that, listen, if you're a true prophet of God, you ain't never going to get it wrong. You'll never get it wrong. You got to be batting a thousand or else they're going to kill you. But many of these individuals will proclaim something. And it won't come true. And then they got to come, well, I mean, you know, usually it's the other people. They'll say, well, you didn't have enough faith to activate the miracle. If you hear about people talking about activation, be weary of that too. It's like when people tell me real talk. I know pretty much you're about to lie to me. No, no, real, real, real talk. Okay, you're about to lie to me. When you hear activation, let your spidey senses go up. Ephesians 2, 19 through 21 speaks of this reality. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, built on the foundation of God's holy word. 
In other words, Paul will go on to say, listen, we have a foundation. Don't let anybody lay any other foundation other than Jesus Christ, Christ crucified, that he came, died, and was buried, and rose on the third day. Don't lay any other kind of foundation than that. Now, we build upon that foundation with either wood, hay, and straw, or we build upon it with precious gems and silver and gold. But the foundation can't be changed. The foundation doesn't need to be peered. There doesn't need to be a new foundation laid. Everything that has been given to us as Christ is the cornerstone is all that we need. Amen? Amen? Okay, so that's not the sermon. So that's it. That's kind of like an offset introduction. I've been gone for a whole month. I don't know if y'all brought a lunch or, or not, but I've been gone for a whole month. So that's just, that's all free. You started my clock way too soon. That wasn't the message. This is the message. What we see here in our text, first and and foremost, the first thing if you're taking notes is we see the priority of prayer in Jesus' life. He's about to make a huge decision. I don't know about you, but oftentimes before the big test, before the big day, before the big decision has to be made, what what is our go-to? Let's eat a good meal. Let's get a good night's sleep. And Jesus said, no, 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 prayer, pray. How often do we relegate decisions, profound decisions to our life, to our own wisdom? And then after we start to go down that road of decision-making, we come and we ask the Lord, will you bless this? Here's my plan, bless it. As opposed to going to the Lord and saying, Lord, what what step would you have me take? Where would you have me go? Now, I love that he's praying over relationships that are about to be established. Are we praying over friends? Are we praying over relationships that we're going to establish? Are we praying over all of the decisions of our lives? We need to be going to the Lord in prayer for everything. It is the greatest weapon that has been given to us apart from the Holy Spirit and God's holy word is prayer. Those three in unison, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, the scriptures that we are to read to inform us and prayer, that is the lifeline of each and every follower of Jesus Christ. And we see Jesus modeling this for the disciples. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, I love how the New Living Translation renders it. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Now, I know that's a whole lot easier to preach than it is to actually live out. But it's in the scriptures nonetheless. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. You notice that in prayer? Give it to the Lord. Give it over to the Lord. In prayer, that is what we're doing. We are recognizing I'm not strong enough to hold this. And the reason why so many of us are gripped with anxiety and fear and worry is because we're holding on to something that we were never created to hold on to. Give it to the Lord and then thank him for what he's done. Lord, I don't know what you're going to do right here, but I know what you've done, and I'm going to praise you for that. I'm not going to carry what it is that's weighing my heart down. I'm going to give it to you. So many individuals are anxious and worried. Do you remember the first time somebody gave you a baby to hold? Maybe you're a teenager, maybe you hold the baby. I still, to this day, even my own kids, my wife, like, you're trying to hold the baby. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know. Am I holding the neck right? How do I, how I do it? I'm not supposed to grab them by the ankles. I, I don't know. <laughs> right? You remember when somebody gives you their baby, the nervousness, the anxiety, you're holding the baby that's so little that it's looking up at you like, you really shouldn't be holding me. Am I cradling the neck right? Am I got, if I got the right, if I got the right position? And there's an anxiety and there's a worry, right? But then when you give it back to mama, mama just comes right in. I mean, she, boom, it's like, dang. That didn't look comfortable. But, you know, they just ready to go. It's the same thing with what weighs us down. We take things the world gives us and we're, we're I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I should be holding this. I don't, give it to Jesus. That is what he's called us to. And allow that anxiety and that worry to be lifted off of you. And thank him for what he has done. It says this peace 
will guard your hearts and your minds if you do so. So we see the priority of prayer in Jesus' life. Secondly, we see the diversity of the apostles. I love the fact that we just sang in another tongue. I love that. That was such a blessing to me. Going to other foreign countries and being in some of those worship services where individuals are singing, singing and I have no idea what they're, what they're saying. I have no idea what they're saying, but I know the God that they're singing to. I know that he loved them and think about how big of a God we have. That all of these different languages, all of these individuals from around the world, if they place their faith and trust in Jesus, they have a God who loves them. They have a God that they can praise and that we come together in the beauty of the diversity that is in the life of the church, both universal and local. And our local churches should reflect the diversity that we find at the throne room of heaven. We see in Revelation 7, 9 through 10 that when Jesus gives a peek back into the spiritual realm of the kingdom of God in the throne room of heaven, and we see that there are individuals around the throne from every tongue and every tribe and every people and every nation, how glorious is that going to be? How boring it would be. We are all the same. We all look the same. We, 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 we all act the same. How boring that would be, the beauty of diversity. I can't remember how many types of apples there are. I used to only think there were two, green and red, but turns out there's more. <laughs> the diversity of God, the joy within that diversity. And then we look at these 12 individuals that are called by Jesus to himself to fulfill the office of apostle, and we see the diversity that is found within them. Think about, think about Peter. Peter's the, uh, the ultimate optimist. They, Peter, we, we can do it. He don't even know what they're doing yet. We do it. <laughs> he don't know where they're going, what they're doing. We do it. Give me a sword. We'll kill anybody who gets in the way. We're good. That's Peter, right? The, the ultimate optimist. And then you got Thomas. He's like, eh, I don't know. I don't know about all that. You sure? I don't think we can do it. I got to see it. You know, I got to see it to believe it. Poor Thomas. The dude asked one question. All of church history, doubting Thomas. Church tradition says he goes all the way to India with the gospel and dies by being speared to death, and we know him as Doubting Thomas. I, I think he's going to take up issue with all of us when we get there. Went to India with the gospel. One question. You didn't ask a question. Nobody calls you Doubting Adam. He takes the gospel all the way to India and dies in proclaiming the gospel. But we see this, this optimist Peter, we see this, this pessimist Thomas, and we see that they're on the same team. What about Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector? The, the diversity within that. You have one individual that says, Rome needs to be overthrown at all costs. Uh, we're not going to let them tax us anymore, and we're going to do this by force. And then you have an individual who says, I'm in. I'm making a lot of money off of this, and I'm good. I'm going to set up my tax booth, and I'm going to make a lot of money off of the individuals that are in this culture and this society. And they're on the same team. What about James, the, 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 the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee? Jesus gave him the moniker, sons of thunder. Now, their mama came and asked them. Jesus, can my boy, that sons of thunder. Their mama's coming, and that doesn't sound very thunderous to me. But James is, he, I mean, he's calling down fireballs on people for cutting them off in traffic. He wasn't welcomed in a place. Let's fireball them, Jesus. Let's go. Let, let's just do it. Let, let's just rain down fire on them. And then you got the other James, James, the son of Alphaeus, or in, in uh, some of the Gospels, he's referred to as James the Less. Now, that word in the Greek, less, it could mean younger. It could mean shorter. Or it could mean an individual who doesn't have much influence. And so James, the son of Zebedee, they had a pretty uh, uh, fruitful uh, fishing industry. Probably was known by a lot of individuals. And probably, more than likely, when it says James the Less, it means that this individual probably didn't have a, a lot of influence. And, and many individuals say that this is a man who, who was kind of obscure. We don't have one word recorded that James the Less spoke. We don't have one act uh, before Jesus died and was resurrected. And we don't have one act of his afterwards. 
He was a man that was okay with being obscure. So you got James, the, the, the son of thunder, whose mom is going to try to get him a position. And then you got James the less, who, who's saying that I'm, I'm, just, I'm just following Jesus. And, and listen, it is what it is. And he's living in obscurity. One that wants the limelight and one that wants to be obscure. And yet they're on the same team. We see the diversity of the apostles, and we see the diversity of the church and the beauty of them. If you're taking notes, we see that uh, within this diversity, we all have different stories. Your story is different than my story. My story is different than your story. We all have different stories. But if we're followers of Jesus Christ, there's one thing that is common in all of our stories, and that is that we were sinners saved by grace, and that we are still in our sin unless we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus. But your story might not be the same. You came to Jesus in a different way. You had a different background, different socioeconomic uh, upbringing. You may have lived in, in a different place. You may have lived on a foreign, uh, in a foreign country and, and come here. You may have been born and raised here in Kuwaita. Uh, you may be from God's country in Texas like me. It's just we all have different stories. We all have different strengths. So we see that in the apostles, they all had different strengths. Your strength is different than my strength. My strength is different than your strength. But not only do we have different strengths, we all have different struggles. And that's the beauty of the church is where I'm weak, God can strengthen me oftentimes through the others that are strong in that to come alongside of me and to keep my hands lifted up like Aaron and Hur and Moses. And we have strength to come alongside individuals that are weak and keep their hands lifted up like Aaron and, and Hur did Moses. And so there's this beautiful diversity within the life of the church that ought to be celebrated, that ought to be cultivated. For the gospel isn't for one set of individuals. It isn't for one geographic area. It is for all people. But not only do we see the diversity of these 12 individuals that he calls to himself, we see the unity of the apostles. We see that in the midst of this diversity, they are brought together by this common cause. What Paul will write in to the Philippian church, he will call the cause of Christ. Listen, there's a lot of causes you can dedicate your life to. There's a lot of causes, but only one has eternal implications, and only one has eternal merit, and that is the cause of Christ. It's the only thing that you will labor in, and you will not labor in vain. The cause of Christ, and that's what unifies us. It's, it's not our, our favorite sports team. It's not our geographic location. It's not our socioeconomic upbringing. It, it, it's not any of those things. It's not our hobbies that brings us together. It's the fact that I'm a sinner. But yet God loved me so much, he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for me. And outside of him, I have no hope. But in him, I have all the hope of eternity. And I come in conjunction with my brothers and sisters in Christ to proclaim and worship that that is the truth. And he is the only God worthy of our praise. And we do so together, not because we're all the same, not because we have everything in common based upon our preferences. But we, what we have in common is our salvation and our Savior. And we see the unity of the apostles, which is a proclamation and an understanding for all of us of the unity within the church. 1 Corinthians 1.10 says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. In other words, he's saying, listen, we don't all have to agree on, on everything in the world. We're not all going to agree. Listen, we're Baptists. We sure ain't going to agree on everything. But there are certain foundational truths that we must agree upon. We must agree upon the fact that Jesus is the only way and that you can't earn your salvation. We must agree upon the fact that there is a really place, there is a very real place called hell, and all those who reject Jesus Christ will end up there for eternity. We all need to be united around the one another commands that are found all throughout the New Testament. One that pops up over and over again is love one another. Love one another. Are we showing a loss in a dying world, his love that has been poured out into our hearts the way that we love one another? 
prayed that what would be modeled for a lost and a dying world isn't just more of what they see in their office places or in uh, the, the, their, their workplaces or at the ball fields, especially at Little League games. <laughs> but they would see something radically different by the way that we love one another, the way that we treat one another. Listen, let us not only have in common the fact that we come to a certain location at a certain time and worship and we have no interaction with each other whatsoever. Listen, I love sight and sound theater. I love it. Anybody love sight and sound theater? That's my happy place. But when I go there, I got my ticket. It's a production. It's a show. I get there, I slide in. I mean casually greet those that are around me, but I'm not engaged in anything to do with their life whatsoever. I find my seat, so they're Baptist. <laughs> I find my seat, I sit in the seat, I watch it, and I slip out without interacting with, the, with anybody. And I consume some of those beautifully roasted almond, oh man, those are great. I consume some things and then I go. Listen, church, this isn't sight and sound theater. If we treat it as such, we stroll in maybe five minutes late, we find our seat. God forbid somebody's in our seat. Uh, <laughs> uh. I love when we have Sunday night services and first and second service have to be in the same room together. And, and they come to their seat, but it's also somebody in first service's seat. And, and just the, the look. What are we going What are we going to do? Pull stick. Some of you will get that reference. I don't even know where I was going with that. Um, we all have, we don't have that, we, we shouldn't treat it like a production, right? What would it look like if we all came 10 minutes early and, and waited around 10 minutes before we left and we actually interacted with each other? Especially that person that we haven't seen in here before. And we check on them. And we see, hey, how are things going? I see those that have little kids like that. The ten I can stay 10 minutes late. 10 minutes early ain't happening. Right? I get that. My wife said, that's easy for you to say. You're already at the church. I got to get all the kids ready. We are united together. So three things. We all have been called. So we've all been called by Jesus out of darkness into his marvelous life. We've, we've all been called. We all have that in common. We're all united by the fact that we have been called. Secondly, we've all been cleansed. If you've come to Jesus Christ, you've been forgiven of your sins. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter what you've been forgiven of. It just matters that you have been forgiven. We've been cleansed. If you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then we all are united around the common truth that we have been cleansed. Thirdly, we all have been commissioned. We've all been given a mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We've all been commissioned. We've all been given the same mission. We've all been sent. We've all been equipped with exactly what we need in the gospel message to go and proclaim it to the very ends of the earth. And that brings me to my last point. The reality of our calling. Now, it doesn't show this to us in the text. But we have the luxury of knowing what happens after these individuals are called to, to Jesus. We have the luxury of, of, of knowing the fulfillment of all of revelation that is given to us by, by God. And the first thing that I want to show you about the reality of our calling is the calling is for all to participate. The calling is for all to participate in. Right? That, that is the calling. It, it, it's not just the expectation was on, on the call for, for, for us to participate. It wasn't just for five of the 12 to participate in the Great Commission. He, he, didn't, he didn't just expect five of them to do the work and the other seven to just kind of hang, hang around and, and to chill out. The expectation isn't for uh, uh, just a certain select few individuals within the life of this church to do the work while everybody else just hangs out. 
Unfortunately, there is a common occurrence in a lot of churches to the point that there is a known saying within the lives of the church of the 80-20 rule. 20% of the church does 80% of the work. Well, God says, no, that's not how it's supposed to work. 100% of the church should do 100% of the work. We're all called to participate. And the sad part is we miss out on the joy of serving our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ within the confines of the church body when we fail to plug in, when we fail to actually engage in the mission that God has called us to. We look most like Jesus when we don the servant's towel around our waist and start to wash the feet of those that are around us. It's not just for a select few. It's not just for the, the staff. It's not just for the deacons. It's not just for uh, the, the individuals that really have it. No, the expectation is the moment you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will participate in the work of the kingdom that is to come. For you're not saved by works, but you are saved by faith so that you would walk in the good works that were prepared beforehand that you would walk in. Each and every one of us, those strengths that God has been giving you, listen, the church is stronger and better when you plug in and you utilize those strengths for the growth of the church. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, good evangelism will produce disciples, and good discipleship will produce evangelism. So this idea that you'll make disciples of all nations embedded in it is evangelism. So sometimes you hear, well, we're an evangelistic church. Well, then you're, 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 you're half of the church that God called you to be. Well, we're a discipleship church. Well, you're half the church God called you to be because for them to first become disciples, they've they got to repent and believe. So there's evangelism embedded in that, but there's the expectation that we don't just lead somebody to Christ and after they get baptized, we hand them a towel and say, okay, now figure it out. How many people, that was your story, right? I came to faith in Christ, man, I followed through in baptism, and then it was kind of like, okay, you got this? Uh, not really. And the discipleship aspect was missing. And God tells all of us to participate in the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, we also see there will always be persecution. There's always going to be persecution. Every one of these individuals that is in this list, minus Judas, who hung himself, and we'll talk about that here in a second, and John, who although they tried to kill him, they boiled him alive according to church tradition, all of the other disciples took the gospel to the ends of the earth, and they all died for their faith according to church tradition. Now, the only one that we have recorded is James, uh, the, the, the brother of John. He was beheaded in Acts 12, too. And he didn't get beheaded because he didn't have enough faith. No, don't fall victim to that message. If you have enough faith, you just, everything will be right in your life. He got beheaded because he had a lot of faith. And he wouldn't shut up about his faith. He wouldn't dim his light so that the world would be more comfortable in their darkness. Stop letting the darkness try to tell the church at what level we're going to put the light on. Amen. We're called to shine bright into the darkness. And we know that people love the darkness and they hate the light. So when we're shining our light, why do we expect the world to embrace us? They hate the light. They absolutely hate it. You ever had somebody, when you've been in darkness... You've been maybe asleep or something, a light comes, comes flipped on, and um, what, what the first reaction is, hey, turn the light out. What are you doing? There are individuals outside of the church and inside of the church that have been so accustomed to the darkness that they can't stand the light. Outside of it, hey, we, we don't like that. Inside, shh, and when somebody's living bright, I mean, they're, they're weird. Freak, Jesus freaked. I mean, they, I mean, calm it down a little bit, right? Dim your light a little bit. You're, you're, you're a little crazy. And then you compare their life with the book of Acts, and it's like, well, I don't really think so. Seems pretty normal to live all in for Jesus. Like, that's the expectation. Right. My son Tyler, 
I love my son Tyler. We've been blessed by God with our son Tyler. And he has the gift of autism. And I call it a gift because he teaches me more about myself and about my Lord uh, than, than, than many other things. And my son Tyler, uh, 7 o'clock, that brother's up. 7 o'clock, he's up. And he's ready to get into it. Now, he loves technology. Me and uh, the, the staff and our families, we just had our staff retreat. And so we all went away together. And we were all in a house together. There are 25 of us in this house. 11 adults, 14 kids. Chilling in this house. And we had a great time together. Uh, but my son Tyler, 7 o'clock. That brother's up. And he loves TVs. If it were up to him, he'd turn on every TV in every house. He'd have 20 TVs going, and he would just go from TV to TV to TV to TV. That would, that would be his thing. Now, when he gets up and he enters into a room, he's like Kramer. That brother's just in. <laughs> yep. I mean, he's there. You know, he's there. There's some people that don't wake up at 7 o'clock. They did on this trip. Because he knew the TV was in their room. And I don't know how many times, lovingly, T would come in, he'd go straight for the remote, and you would hear, uh, hey, hey, Tyler, could you turn off the light? I mean, he's just going to flip it on. Now, when you think about the parable of when the weeds were sown amongst the wheat field, when was the enemy capable to commit that act? It says, while men slept. While men slept. You see, spiritually, even in the life of the church, just like outside of the world, hey, 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 turn that light off. You're disrupting my sleep. Hey, turn that, turn that light off. And we as a church, we, we start to allow the culture to conform us. Oh, you don't, you don't like that light? It's too, br too bright for you in this, this room of your life? Okay, I'll turn it off. Oh, you don't like that light? Okay, I'll dim it. You don't like this light? I'll turn it off. And we're giving ground up to say time and time again. Oh, that, 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 you don't like that? Okay, I'm sorry. Listen, we were called to be the salt and the light. And there's going to be persecution. There's going to be persecution. Listen to 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 13. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now look at verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You want to avoid persecution? Don't live a godly life. A sin. And there's so many individuals, we start talking about holiness in the life of the church. And we start talking about setting ourselves apart from the world and being that light. And because the world doesn't like it, there's so many individuals that want to avoid persecution. And the only way you can do it is to dim your light. But God didn't call you to that. So you live for me, there's going to be persecution. The question is, is Jesus worth it? Yeah. Is Jesus worth it? And I agree with my brother. He is. He is absolutely worth it. He is worth it. Everything that we give up for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is worth it. Everything that we endure for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in advancement of his gospel is worth it. It is worth it. Thirdly, there's always going to be sons of perdition. Now, that's not a word that we typically use. It means destruction. Uh, but it messed up my alliteration, and so we're going to go with perdition. It's also biblically. Biblical. You can find that in John 17, 12. My translation, the SV, uh, renders Judas as being a son of destruction. But there's always going to be sons of perdition. In other words, there's always going to be Judases in, 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 that are around uh, Jesus, uh, that are in the life of the church, but they're not really a part of the church because they've come self-seekingly. Judas was, he thought, uh, listen, if this is the Messiah, he's thinking more of political gain. Listen, I'm, I'm getting in while the getting's good. I'm getting on the ground floor. 
And man, there's going. I'm going to get a lot of things out of this. And he started kind of pinching from and stealing from the treasury because he's looking out for himself. But listen, the call of Jesus Christ upon our lives isn't a self-centered call. It's not so that you can now live your life however you want to, empowered by the Holy Spirit to achieve all of those things. It is so that you will die to self and live for the kingdom that is to come. You see, self-centered intentions will always run aground in a faith that calls for uncompromised self-denial. To die to self. That is the call for each and every one. But there's going to be many at the day of judgment that are going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not do? Depart from me. I never knew you. And do you see the basis of the knowledge of Christ having for them based on what they did? Did we not do these things? Listen, your relationship on me is not based upon things you do, but upon what Jesus did. No, no, no. Don't you know me? I did these things for you. You got your reward on, on the earth. The basis upon you entering into my kingdom is your faith in the atoning sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That and that alone. There will always be individuals that will be a part of the, the church. And, and I say that because there are so many people that have left the church because somebody has hurt you. There was somebody in there that, that didn't live uh, according to Jesus. And they may be true followers of Jesus Christ. Listen, we all stumble. We all fail. I've had, I've had some bad food at restaurants before, but I still eat. There's always going to be individuals that Satan will try to use to deter you from doing what it is that God has called you to do. Lastly, in the end, we will be perfected. This is the good news of the gospel. In the end, we will, we will all be perfected. That's how the story ends. For those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the story ends with us free from sin and sickness and disease and pain and suffering in the loving arms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the end of the story. When you take your last breath here on this earth as a follower of Jesus Christ, you take your first breath in the kingdom. That is the beauty of it. That is why it is worth it. Everything that you pour out here on this earth, it is worth it because of what has been promised to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, notice that Jesus prepared for his departure. Here, we start to see a, a shift. Uh, coming out of this, in Luke's gospel, he gives a sermon on the plain. Um, I think it's a different preaching than the Sermon on the Mount, but it's, it, it's the, the core tenets. Uh, of uh, the, the, the Christian life as far as how, how we are to live it out. And I'm, I'm sure Jesus preached it many times in, in different facets at different locations. And so what we see is he's starting to prepare his disciples because he, he's, going to, he's going to leave. He knows that he's going to depart. He's going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to entrust them to go and to serve the Lord. Now, I pray all of us understand that we're all going to die one day. How are we preparing for that day? Many of us buy a plot in the earth that we're going to be buried in. We establish a trust and some kind of fund that we want to set up. And we, we, we prepare earthly. But the question is, are we preparing like Jesus? Are we pouring into other individuals that will know how to pour into other individuals that know how to pour into other individuals so that the legacy that we leave behind is a legacy of the Great Commission being fulfilled by the disciples that we have raised up who in turn know how to make other disciples? Are we prepared to take our last breath by pouring our whole lives into our children so that they know the truth of God's word? Are we pouring our lives into the young people of this church? Are we pouring our lives into our neighbors? Are we pouring our lives into other individuals preparing for the day we take our last breath here on this earth? The proclamation of the gospel can continue to go forth. That's what Jesus is doing. And notice that he does it with a small group. Now he's got a large, he preaches to the masses, but he primarily says the world is going to be changed a small group of ordinary individuals answering an extraordinary call, going out, planting churches, making disciples, raising up leaders who go out and plant churches, who make disciples, who raise up leaders, who go out and plant churches and make disciples and raise up leaders. And all are expected to participate. That's why if you're not in a community group, I pray that you will get involved in a community group. Be involved in a small group. 
Next Sunday, we're going to have our community group fair out in the new foyer. If you're not in a community group, you're going to see all of the community groups that, that, that meet, when they meet, what they're going to be studying. And I just want to encourage you to get involved in a community group. Beautiful truth of the fact that we will be perfected. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of this reality that one day the perishable will put on the imperishable the mortal will put on immortality and we will be free from all sin. And we praise God for that reality and that truth. Now here in a moment, we're going to take of the bread and of the cup and we're going to remember what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. And in it, I am reminded through this text of the one who betrayed Jesus. I'm always reminded that Jesus washed Judas' feet also. He knew he was going to betray him, and he still washed his feet. What an example for each and every one of us. But I think about Judas. Do you remember Judas? He comes to a place of remorse, not a place of repentance, and he takes the 30 pieces of silver and he takes it back to the religious leaders and he gives them the silver and he says that I, I, have, I have done this against an innocent man. And he, what did the religious people say? What is that to us? Go and see to it yourself. They put his brokenness and his pain back on himself. Isn't that what all religion does? Your brokenness, your sin, your pain your rejection of God Almighty, you need to figure it out yourself. You need to be better. You need to do better. You need to take it into your own hands, and you need to figure it all out. That's all what religion says. You need to be better. You need to do more. You figure it out yourself. What is it to us? Figure it out yourself. That's religion. And what does he do? He runs to a tree, and he hangs himself. Listen, there's so many individuals that are running to the wrong tree. Judas ran to the wrong tree. There was a tree he should have ran on, on Calvary, that Jesus was hanging on, dying for his sins, instead of him taking it in his own hands and saying, I'm going to fix my brokenness through this act. He should have ran to the cross of Jesus Christ, knelt down at that tree, and placed his faith and trust in Jesus, and asked for forgiveness, and he would have received it. But there are so many people that are at the end of a noose because they're trying to deal with their brokenness. They're trying to deal with their pain. They're trying to deal with their suffering. They're trying to deal with their sin and they are choking and they are dangling and they are being crushed to death and their life is being sucked out of them because they ran to the tree of self instead of the tree of Jesus. And what this represents right here is the tree of Jesus. His body that was crucified and his blood that was spilled. Don't live your life at the tree of Judas. Answer the call to come to the tree of Jesus. It's not in your hands anymore. Place everything in his. Repent and believe. Let's pray.